This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 17. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 17, brought to you, of course, by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. I tell you, I just had some clients leave my house after a touch-up mix session. I tell you, when stuff goes right, it's so rewarding. I tracked it. I think I did a good job tracking because the mixing was pleasurable. Uh, The tones were already there. I didn't have to do any real fixes. And I sent out mixes to the band. They loved them. And they said, there's just a couple things we want to touch up. And they showed up. All of the mix touch-ups revolved around doing a reverb reduction of about, I would say, 25 to 50%, depending on the song and, and the instrumentation and the how much was going on. But for the most part, that was it. There was a couple tracks where the vocals, they were like, oh, it's just a little bit too loud in this section. And but that was it, 17 songs, and it just pop, just like that. I can't believe it. It took us like, I think it took us two and a half hours, something like that. So it gave me time to, of course, sit down and, and record uh, the intro here for today's show. And of course, I want to do a geographic shout out this time. Let's talk about Texas, right? What the heck is going on over in Tyler, Texas? Tyler, Texas is like the one place where I, I get the most listeners. That is crazy. Tyler, Texas. All right. Tyler, Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, Houston, Garland, Denton, Harlingen. I'm going to blow this, but it's Uvalde. Uvalde? I've never even heard of that. Uh, Haltom City. Plano, Texas, Raymondville, San Marcos, Bel Air, Elgin, Fort Worth, Grapevine, Irving, Texas, Kyle, Wimberley, and the Woodlands. So, uh, hey, Texans, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Tyler, man, you guys are going crazy over there. That's fantastic. That's about it. So on to today's interview featuring our friend, Ross Hogarth. Ross is, of course, known for working with a lot of people. That includes uh, Van Halen, the new Van Halen record featuring David Lee Roth back in the band. And that's, of course, great if you're a giant Van Halen fan like I am. Uh, But of course, Keb Moe, Sick Puppies, Bonnie Tyler, uh, Fits in the Tantrums, uh, Steve Lukather, the Doobie Brothers, believe it or not, John Mellencamp, Miley Cyrus even. Yeah, how about that? And, And Ziggy Marley, can't leave out Ziggy Marley. Uh, just on and on and on and on. He's worked with a ton of people. So anyways, here we go. On to Ross Hogarth. I'll apologize right now. Ross and I had some Skype funkiness. So there's a couple phrases in here that get all robotic and weird, and we're just going to go with it, you know? Whatever works, as Ross likes to say. And uh, so here we go. Ross Hogarth on Working Class Audio. There you are. Hey. So how are you, man? You know, I'm I'm good. I'm uh, like doing a bunch of stuff with Floggy Molly. How did the uh, broadcast go? Oh, it was insane. It was awesome. It was really great. It was such an awesome night. I mean, the audio of that broadcast was, I didn't think it was, you know, I didn't get sound check. I mean, I listened to it back. It sounds fine. But like, you know, things like finesse things are just definitely not there. It's like a broad stroke of me trying to like hold on to Mr. Toad's wild ride. Yeah, just like yeah, push it all up and go. But it it you know it was recorded well, and the mix of it when I do it will be great. And the you know we built a um, a pub on stage. It's crazy. I don't know. You you can look online. I mean, you know they were serving Guinness and you know people getting drunk on stage because literally built a pub like the Palladium backdrop was an Irish pub like Molly Malone's. So yeah, it's That's cool. It was a great. It, it was like the whole look of it will be amazing. So behind you, this is, uh, I've seen this room many times, not just in that Google Hangout, but uh, in pictures. Yeah, uh, this is my studio. This uh, is, and this is at home, right? Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. It's, you know, it's messy, but whatever. It's, it's my, it's where I get to mix records. You know? I wanted to ask you about that. You're, mi- you're, you're mixing at home. And obviously uh, that has some economic benefits. And It's got a lot of benefits. I had lunch yesterday with Al Schmidt. The one thing like that Al loves is going to Capital, you know, and he's Al Schmidt, so he can get people to afford to go to Capital, mm-hmm. pay his rate and pay Capital's rate, which, you know, probably, I would say somewhere probably four grand a day, maybe, you know, total, you know, I mean, considering his rate and what Capital charges, you know, which is about two grand a day. 
it's like standard 80s 90s kind of like budgets when we did budgets back then which was like you know a week in the studio was 10 to 20 grand or 10 to 15 grand so record budgets were two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. you know i mean that's what they were now people are coming generally you know doing kickstarter and indigo and you know self-funding and for the most part the, the economy that we live in is a economy based in where the industry is i don't consider any of us fringe talents but you know there are certain people that are still getting that top of the food chain budget but for the most part most of my peers people like myself who spent a good portion of their career working on major albums and stuff we're now working within the all-in budget people coming and saying hey i got 10 grand because i just did a kickstarter or I got 15 grand, I just did a Kickstarter. And they got to do the whole thing for this amount of money that would have normally been just about like what it would have cost to go do a week in a studio. You know, what you, we have to live inside of is still loving what we do and not hating where the industry has gone and then hating what we do because we have to get paid less. You have to find a way to do it. You have to, you know, adapt and change and morph. And yeah, do I miss going to Capitol all the time or A&M or the record plant or the village or any of the other amazing, great studios, East West or United or any of these great studios and being able to walk down the hall and see, you know, someone in the coffee room and talk about, Hey man, come in my room or all that, you know, amazing kind Com of interaction. Camaraderie. That, yeah. You know, that was a really beautiful and amazing part of what we did, how we exchanged creative ideas and, we're sort of all part of a certain peer and uh, mindset or whatever, you know, like brain trust. Like you would go, hey, check this piece of gear out. Now it's all really happening on the Internet, that Google Hangout or whatever, you know, your, your your blog or this is how people are connecting with other people. And so there's less personal one on one interaction where you're actually in the same room with each other. But at least there's communication happening. and. From a monetary standpoint, you know, I need to feed my family, make a living and do what I do and what I love to do. So being able to work in my room here and mix records or do vocals or guitar, bass overdubs, I don't, you know, I have drums in my living room. I don't want to do that. I don't want to have a band come in and like be tracking in my house. I tried that. My wife is like, you got to be kidding. <laughs> you know? She's like, don't send me away to go to my relative's so that you can use the house to track a band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Honey, it's a beautiful weekend. You should you should, you should, go, you should yeah. go out and do go something. Or whatever. You know. Can you come back in like a day? I tried that. Yeah. <laughs> I got some good drum sounds once. Yeah. <laughs> but mixing but, uh, at home, very, very doable. It's more than doable. I mean, I know my room. You know, it's like when I had other rooms that I worked in for years, I knew them. But the worst thing for me always was having to pull out of the room you know and go somewhere and scramble to get your stuff set up and find like the sweet spot to put your speakers up on the console in a room that you haven't worked in in ages, no matter what that room is, you know, great, amazing rooms. And the first mix was always a re like we always had to recall the first mix because like you knew you were going to recall your first mix because you were never going to nail it. Because by the time you finished that first mix and went on to your second mix, you had dialed in where you were in the room. In my room, where I've been, you know, basically mixing for over 10 years now since Pro Tools, you know, with delay compensation allows us, you know, do parallel compression and put inserts on and do every kind of style of mixing that we were used to, you know, in the analog world in an analog desk without using a DAW. I know my room. I know my sweet spot. My gear's always set up. I don't have to do any, you know, like when I get a song to mix, I don't have to like, you know, set up my gear and all that stuff. It's all set up and you're dialed in and you know your spot and you're comfortable. And the comfort zone, I think, leads a lot to the creativity like that you have, like feeling more creative than just like getting past the technical for like a few hours which is, I think, a big plus, you know? And it seems more and more and more people are mixing at home. The whole in-the-box, hybrid, out-of-the-box thing, that's a whole other discussion, but more yeah. and more people are working out of their homes. Uh, 
I mean, I believe, uh, I believe Reed Shippen does. I believe uh, Andrew do- Sheps does. Um, now, obviously, Vance has he's he and he and Mitch have their 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 separate building, but 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 that kind of lends to the conversation of everybody's kind of getting away from booking a traditional studio to mix in as time goes along. It seems is that. Do you think that's true? I, I do, I, and I think there's a few people that you know. I, I think. So I, did, I have never been into Reed's room uh, and I'm going to be down in Nashville, you know, in a week um, and I want to pop by there. I didn't know that he was actually in what is his house. I thought he actually was off site, but I may be wrong about that. I'm, I'm basing that off of uh, a picture that I saw on his website and I thought, hmm, that looks like it could be in his house. Yeah, it does look like it's it almost looks like it's in a library or something like that. I mean, it's like it looks like a really cool room, but he has an SSL in there. Like, yeah, you know, he's got a full on SSL. I mean, my, you know, we could hybrid mixing. That's another conversation and how you do it. I mean, I have my three car garage here. I could have a, I mean, I got enough room to put an SSL in there. I just never, you know, don't want it, you know, and I don't want the thing. I don't like also about mixing when you've mixed for years on a console and then you get off a console, like on a console, you got to go all the way down to the end of the console to get to like channels, you know, anything over 24 or 30 or whatever, you're moving your way. Like here are your speakers. And now you're moving out of the sweet spot. Kick drums over here. Yeah. So now you're EQing and balancing on the other side, almost like the other side of the room. And when you stop doing that and you actually, whether you're on an Icon or a C24 or or in the box or whatever you're doing, when you just keep yourself at the center of the speakers, I find that my balances translate that much better. I don't know. We didn't think about this until you think about it. Like I, I like a lot of the records I've done. I'm proud of them. You know, when people talk about the the mix, you know, like the headroom of a DAW and all that stuff, I've just never had anyone call me up after listening to a mix and go, you know, you really should have been on a console. It's more like it's whether I nailed the mix or whether the song was good or whether, you know what I mean? It's like, but no one ever calls me up and said, you know, I was listening to that Ziggy Marley record that I know you did on a console. And, you know, that record you just mixed for me doesn't hold up, you know because we've learned now how to do what we do the way we do it. And I mean, a good carpenter never blames his tools. Exactly. I mean, if, if you cooked me a meal and and I'd comment on the quality of the meal, not how you did it. Yeah. I I wouldn't say, you know, I know you cook this on a, on an electric stove or a hot plate. Yeah, exactly. Or, or like, you know, one of those really fancy, like silver, like whatever those, you know, whatever those stoves are that are like silver and like wolf or wolf. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Hey man, you really need a wolf. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what you're doing. Like, it just didn't taste like it would have tasted had you used a wolf. You exactly. Know? So, I mean, it gets kind of kooky. You know, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of kookiness. And then the bottom line is, we're not judged by the process. In the end, no one listens to your work or my work, and you know, analyzes the process they sit back and is it you know did it make them feel good you know and is it good music and did you you know is there a frequency response that makes you feel good i mean there's some records that pardon me but they kind of sound like ass but they're intended to sound like ass you know like there's a i mean i i could never mix the way uh dave fridman does the those flaming lips flaming lips yeah i mean that is like but don't you enjoy it when you listen to it oh yeah now, who knows how he does that stuff? I don't I don't even get into it. It's distorted. It's all over the place. But that's their music, you know? Yeah. I think when you figure out how you're doing the work you do, you go back into focusing more on the music and don't get so caught up in the technical. And, and that's the part of my room that I like. I I have the gear I like in here that it's sort of some stuff comes and goes. That's why it's called Boogie Motel. <laughs> it it was a mixture of an homage to the first studio I ever worked in and was um, a kid and recorded and took our band into the Boogie Hotel, which was in New York um, on Long Island. And it was Foghat's studio and they have a record called Boogie Hotel. And, uh, you know, it was a cool studio. And I just loved like when I put my room together here initially if the gear was coming in and out of it all the time, it wasn't, you know, really a place where it was fixed. It was more like a place where I edited and stuff. So it was more like my shit's boogieing in and out the door. It like, <laughs> it's staying for a couple nights, maybe yeah. a week, maybe yeah. a month. <laughs> 
and uh and your studio's in your house too right you're in your own spot there. yeah yeah you know I'm, I'm sitting here in front of my pro tools rig and my ns10s and klein and hummels and it's you know just without all the outboard gear i've i've I got rid of a lot of outboard gear more and more i i i'm driven into the box i i enjoy it the thing that's sh- like changed my life about using outboard gear was uh, a guy in Santa Cruz named Colin who has T-Boy audio. I remember that the, the documentation. Well, it's their job. It's JavaScript on the screen, like the knobs turn like, yeah, the, the knobs actually turn and you place the knobs wherever the gear is like, he's takes a photo of all, like he's got almost every piece of gear ever made. And so when you open up in, when you have the subscription, it's not, pdfs or anything it's an actual picture that has javascript so the knobs so you actually place the knob exactly where it is on your gear and then you have numerical readouts on things that you know like a distressor where it'll say 5.5 or whatever because you know like the distressor's got like 5 5.56 so you can actually just type in if you want on gear that has numbers but on gear that doesn't and gear that's sort of like an in-between you can pl- like 1176, like getting a recall on 1176, sort of dicey, you know, it's like, and so you can just make sure you look at the thing. And so a lot of people take photos and I'm like, you'll never take another photo again. Cause you'll have, you actually literally have the knob and you place the knob and then you put your laptop, like right, you hold, you know, you hold your, you know, just put your laptop up in front of the gear and you just open that and you create templates of all your gear hmm. or studio. And so like on Van Halen or anything where you have a console, like I, I've turned assistance at like Ocean Way or United and people onto it because it's like you never have to take another photo. You never have to have another piece of paper. The shit's in the cloud all the time. I love that. Yeah. So like if you're in the middle of a record and the gear is basically the same, you just do a save as from one session to the next of the gear. And you always have an exact like where the knobs are of your gear. So Hmm. uh, it's it's uh, that was the biggest deal for me. It was like recalls. Like, how do I get back analog gear so I can always do a you know, like a recall, because people always want recall, you know, so where we're at. Hey, resung the vocal, you know, whatever. Um, so I, lo- I love that idea, because I hate having paper and pictures and... No, and it's all in the cloud, too. So it's like, no matter where you are, like if you're doing like a vocal and you want your vocal recall, you just do a save as, it's in the cloud, you come home, move to another studio, and you're bringing your mic and mic pre and compressor with you, you always have a recall of the stuff you're doing, or amps, guitar amps, settings and guitar amps, like... Hmm. It's just, it's an amazing service. T-Boy Audio. It's like, T-Boy Audio. Okay. Yeah. It's really, I mean, anybody who's using any kind of gear of any sort should have, you know, should check it out. At the core of your setup is a Pro Tools rig. And, and I know that you have a lot of outboard gear. So I assume that you play with different setups. Do you ever, do you ever mix in the box 100%? Well, the only time I will is if someone sends me a mix and for the most part, they're clients that do music for uh, TV or, you know, cable TV, movies for cable TV, not actual specific movies. Like I, last year, I engineered for James Newton Howard, his uh, movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, but we did that down at the village and stuff. So the work that I do for these clients, they'll be working in their studios and they're usually all in the box kind of people. And so they'll send me their files or drop off a hard drive and they'll want to be able to take what like I do to their already sort of, and I call it like almost like a house of cards where these are the guys who just pile plugins and plugins and plugins. And somehow you get this mix and it's working for them. But if you take one of their plugins off, the whole thing falls on top of itself. So I have to figure out what they got going and what I can take off and what can I put on. And generally what I'm using is like they're using my ears to hear what they're doing, but not disassemble it and reassemble it. So I'll deal with what they've done. And sometimes and often what I'll do is I'll add EQ after their pile of plugins to get rid of some weird like 500 cycle buildup or whatever. And I'll dial in their mix and rebalance it but I'll give it back to them so that they can open it in their studio again. And maybe they'll do new stems or whatever it is they do. So that's, it's an interesting new way of like being sort of the mix executive mixer or something. I don't know what, you know what I mean? It's but you're like, not, you're not reinventing their wheel. You're just kind of taking what they have and working with it. 
Yeah, I mean, I might supplement their drum sounds. I might use my, you know, add my drum sounds, and then I'll print them and give them back, you know, new drum sounds. And if I do any, if I do any outboard compression, I'll print that. So what they get back is something they can open in their studio. Now, if I did it the way that I would do it here on my mixes, that wouldn't go that way, and I would just do them here. I might be using Altec compressors or retro stay levels and things that I do every day that I don't want to print that stuff because I don't want to take like a half a day to print all the things and give them back all that stuff. It's crazy, you know? Mm -hmm. So I make sure that I don't do that on their stuff because I know they want to open it and I know they want to just keep rolling, you know, down the road, having my ears balancing their stuff better and and re-EQing it. And the EQs that I use are all in the box, things I know they have. Mm -hmm. So if they don't have a UA card, I won't use any UA plugins. If they don't have... McDSP, I won't use the E, you know, six or six oh six. They only have waves or whatever. So I know what they have. We've already discussed in advance, like what I don't use. And so when I'm mixing, my hybrid mixing is always going to be for myself analog outboard mix bus compression EQ, you know, my Pultex, my Dramastic Obsidian, my NTI. EQ3, things I've used for 25 years. So the same way I'm mixing here in my studio, in essence, is the same way I've been mixing almost my whole career. You mm-hmm. know, So I haven't changed a lot of certain things where I've changed a bunch of stuff like, you know, like just the use of plugins and the fact that I've been working with many of these companies to help in the development and writing presets for their plugins. But my mindset is basically the same if i want a compressor on the bass i'm usually reaching for a stay level and if i you know if i'm looking for a vocal sound i'm usually bouncing between my 1176 my la2a my stay level the 176 my altex because i like the sound of analog output gear i just do you know i always refer to the music markets as ecosystems and obviously los angeles is one of the most the biggest or most major ecosystems in the recording world how do you stay employed when there is just so much competition, I mean, I'm, in any market, there's always the people that are doing the lowballing, and but you not only have the lowballers, but you've got like some heavy duty names to compete with. How do you survive? Um, it's you know, I'm not cavalier in any answer to this. First off, you know, every job you get, you have to take as serious. I take as seriously as like if you know, again, not name dropping, but if I'm working with Van Halen, I know that. If that goes out in the marketplace, yeah, there's going to be, you know, upwards of so many million people that are probably going to listen to it, whether they buy it or not. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. both know that a lot of music's listened to and not bought, you know. So, you know, the sales figure isn't the figure that you look at as far as, you know, where the listening public is. I mean, if you go on YouTube and you see that like 2 million people or like Ziggy Marley, 15 million people have watched his True to Myself video, then I know that you know, between 50 and 50 million people have heard that song that I produced, you know, so I got to do the best work I can possibly do when I'm doing the work and not think about how much am I getting paid? How many people are going to listen to it? Any of that stuff. I got to clear my head, clear myself from that vibe and just do the best possible work I can do every single time I do work. That I feel leads always to more work, like one way or another. If you do really good work, someone's going to say, They're going to listen to that record, even if it's a mom and pop vibe, you know, they're going to go, hey, wow, that sounds really good, you know, or that's a really good production or whatever it is that you do. So I've been able to stay employed through my networks of friends and the work that I've done. And it's so multifaceted, you know what I mean? It's like the records that I've done that I would never have thought someone would have listened to and then basically taken note of and then come to me and go, wow, I was listening to that whatever and you know it could be some obscure thing i did and if i didn't take that seriously at the time i was doing it and didn't do the best work i could possibly do maybe that wouldn't have translated that way you know whether it's psychoacoustics or karma or whatever kind of metaphysics you want to wrap around it it's a fallacy that managers get you work in general that's a fallacy um i do have i have had like i've had a basically the same manager up until more recently where I have a new manager who 
was basically my old manager. <laughs> you know, it's like not to get into the whole like, you know, the way that things change in the business, but managers don't get you work in general. They're not employment agencies. So if you're a producer, engineer, mixer, thinking that you need a manager to help you get work, I think you're misled, misguided, and you're going to be disappointed because what managers do do is just keep your name in that circle of people that they're around. And that's not bad, but is it specific like they're out there hustling you work and then you're getting all this work because they're hustling? No, I think people are misunderstand that. The manager is someone who you discuss things with and go, hey, do you think this is a good record to do? Or do you think this is a waste of my time? Or do you think this is a good project to go after? You know, like I want to go after this project because I really think I'm good for this. So you have to sort of balance the passion you have for what we do with a certain amount of reality. If you think that you're really good for a record, I think you should just, you know, find a way to get in. It's really a lot easier to get a hold of people now than ever. But A&R people, for the most part, they're not the ones that are signing bands and like the way it used to be where the A&R people went out to clubs and they signed bands and they put bands with the right producer, engineer and mixer and this and that not happening. I think it's way more DIY. You know, the bands themselves are funding or self-funding or they're getting backers. The labels now are more like distribution venues to, you know, put the records out if the record even deserves a label to do that with. So how do I stay current? How do I stay employed? It's multifaceted. It's about relationships. It's about maintaining really positive attitude and interacting with people, whether they're musicians, drummers, bass players, doing great work for musicians gets you hired as an engineer, bottom line, whether mm -hmm. it helps you as a producer or not. If a drummer loves your drum sounds, he's going to make sure that he wants you. Kenny Aronoff has been incredibly influential in my whole career. Kenny has gotten me a ton of work throughout my whole career. I mean, because he loves, we love working with each other. So Kenny's been awesome for me. You know, he recommended me to Melissa Etheridge and John Fogarty and Back in the day, we did, you know, John Bon Jovi, and we did tons of stuff. Kenny was always like, if someone asked Kenny, like, you know, hey, man, we, you know, we want to use you, Kenny would always say, well, you have an engineer. And then for, you know, he got me a ton of work. And that helps, you know, whether it's him or Jim Keltner or a lot of musicians are my friends, you know, CJ Vanston. We did Lukather a couple of years ago. CJ was like, man, I want your drum sounds, you know. CJ's an amazing producer. And I love being a Swiss Army knife. Do I mix? Yes. Do I engineer? Yes. Do I produce? Yes. Do I produce engineer and mix? Yes. Do I always produce? No. Do I always engineer? No. You know what I mean? I like, I love the fact that if I keep myself versatile and, you know, and, and I teach too, like I love going out and teaching kids. And so that puts you in a good karmic place where if you're giving back, it's all about, I think in some levels, some spiritual positivity too. You know I mean? I think if you're a negative person and you're down all the time and you're, you know, in a funky head and mm -hmm. people don't want to be around you. They don't want your energy. They don't want that. So I try to, you know, keep my energy, my vibe good. I know it's multifaceted. You know, it really is. And, you know, in, in the Google uh, Hangout that I was listening to you talk in, you brought up an analogy that I, I love to refer to when I'm talking with people about it. And that analogy being the waiter, the service guy, or gal, yeah. you know, and it's, it's almost, it's like when you, when you said, if I, I can't always, I have to do the best job I can. I can't always worry about how much am I getting paid? It's kind of like a waiter, not thinking, okay, I'm really going to bust my ass and get a tip. And, and so I can get a bigger tip out of these yeah. people. I can't say enough about the waiter analogy in general, because you do a good job, you take care of people, you become what they need you to become. When we're talking about being service oriented and doing an excellent job and clearing your head there's a lot of potential things out there that can distract you and i'm curious how you maintain this how do you always do a good job with the for your clients when there's all these other factors outside of it that could be affecting you and it could be family it could be troublesome record people getting in the way or whether it's personal or business outside influences that can cloud your mind how do you how do you take care of all that and still do a good job? Well, and again, that's a multifaceted answer. I mean, because there's the you that you bring into the workplace, but there's the you that's outside of the workplace that has to be grounded. And, and everyone has their go-to, like, 
you know, smoking and drinking is not a go-to for me anymore. And it hasn't been for a really long time, you know? So I don't have that issue. Like, I'm not worried about, like, I'm not worried, well, worried, but I don't have like, okay, well, I drank too much last night. Now I wake up feeling like heck, you know? So it's like, <laughs> but I'm serious, you know, it's like, so I take, you take those out of the equation. Those are simple things, but a lot of, a lot of people think it's rock and roll to like stay out late and party and all that stuff. So I think in today's you know world and today's economy, I think the the business of music has gotten more serious like any other business. Like if you were a, a really important attorney and you had a case in the morning, you wouldn't have stayed up until five in the morning doing blow, you know, where in music people just thought that was rock and roll. I say, so, so throw that away. So I stay grounded with, you know, I like working out, I meditate, you know, meditating is really important for part of my life is just, you know, being able to be grounded and be open, you know, clear headed and bring a certain, you know, clear head into the room when I start work. And yes, there's always, <laughs> a lot of dynamics. And, you know, I, I say this now having, you know, worked and worked around Van Halen, you know, on and off for the last bunch of years, you know, Alex Van Halen has a concept that I totally believe in that this business of music isn't about business or music. It's about people. So you have to be able to figure out people, understand people, and you take a look at each situation and you kind of figure out who am I dealing with and how do I deal? You know, there are artists that if the, Minute they ask for something, you go into that, well, they're gone. They don't want you part of their scene. And there are a lot of times in the creative process, you have to go down a road, even though in the back of your mind, you're thinking, yes, this is going to work. And, you know, it's better to just go do it and, and go try it and get it, you know, make the effort to try an idea or someone comes back with mixed notes and they have a mile long list of mixed notes it's probably because you didn't have the kind of communication ahead of sending the mix and doing the mix. So you make these mistakes in your career that may happen again, but you try to keep them to a minimum. And so you learn ways of communicating that have nothing to do with like the specific mix. But when you go do that mix, like if someone says, hey, man, just do whatever you want to do. Don't even listen to my rough mix. Nothing on it is worth listening to. Actually, what they're saying is, I'm really attached to my rough mix. And if you don't actually listen through them and get to understand that person before you go even work with them, you're going to come up against a lot of walls, I think. Mm -hmm. and the project's going to be really difficult. So going back to that concept that it's really about people, if it's really about people, it starts with you. So you better understand yourself pretty well. Like before you, like you better understand how you interact, what makes you frustrated, what doesn't, you know. And I know that's not an easy thing as you're sort of growing and, if you're like a 19-year-old or an 18-year-old. But sometimes there's a certain beauty in the freedom that they want too. So I think you have to balance it all. And, you know, what you bring into the room, I think, is a big part of what you, you know, what you get. Like, you know, we don't see life as it is. We see it as we are. So who you are is how you're going to see something or hear something. And, you know, that goes back to like your question about, you know, just how do we stay busy or how do we, you know, Oscar Wilde said it the best. He goes, just be yourself. Everybody else is already taken, you know? So I mean, <laughs> that's great. You know, don't try to be Chris Lord Algae when you're mixing a record, right? It's only one Chris Lord Algae. I mean, you can listen to his mixes and, and appreciate the amount of compression or whatever it is. But if you're going to try to be Chris Lord Algae and think that you're going to be Chris Lord Algae, you're going to be a really bad version of that because there's only one of him and one of everybody else out in the world. And there's only one of you. Learn what makes you special or learn how you like things to be and trust them. Have some trust, you know, start to trust yourself. And I think that starts at any age and goes to all ages. You know, if, if I'm in a room and I'm feeling insecure about myself or about what I'm hearing, or even just feeling insecure just in general about worrying about, you know, oh, you know, my mother's 88 and I wonder if she's going to live another day and all that stuff. You better stand up and walk out of the room and go breathe and come back inside when you don't feel that way. Because all that kind of feeling is going to affect what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you're in the middle of producing an artist and they're about to do vocals and you had a fight with your wife or girlfriend or your kids doing this or that. It's really important to be honest and say, hey, look, you know, let's do vocals and give me 10 minutes. You know, you have to be quick, you know, to turn yourself around. It's not like, hey, man, I need a day. You know, there are producers I've worked with where I watch them melt down and they stop a session and then like you just don't do anything for the rest of the day. That's pretty self-centered. You know, that's like crazy to me. I think when you're in this service oriented business, 
you know, you have to be able to serve at the time and you have to be able to clear your head. So I think what I'm giving as advice is be present to wherever you're at, like kind of at all times. Like, and that's one of the beauties of working in my spot here is the fact that like there's sometimes I'll sit down to work and I'll just be like, oh man, I just not. I, I'm not going to, I can't force it right now. Mm-hmm. Just can't. So I'll go do something else. And it could be an hour or it could be whatever. And I, and I know I, okay, I have to deliver this, but I'll just not do it right then. Yeah. No studio manager, no one holding a gun to my head saying you have to do this right now, unless, you know, I truly do. And then I really have to clear my head real quick. We're probably as volatile individuals as singers, because our ears are connected to our head, connected to our brain. And singers, like their voices are connected to their head, connected to their brain right there. So when your head is in like another world, there's no delay. Like a guitar player, well, their hand is connected to the arm, connected to the shoulder, connected to the head. So when the guitar player's head goes awry, you usually get a couple more takes out of them before it completely falls apart. But singers, it, it's gone immediately. The minute their head is gone, you don't get another take out of a singer. And I think mixer engineers or you know producers or more the producer engineer mixer, we're very similar in that respect. If your head's gone, your ears aren't hearing. You're like gone. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not even hearing what's coming out of the speakers. You're hearing what's in your head. You got to clear that out. Of, you got to you know get up and walk away, stand up and breathe, or turn off the screen and stop looking or whatever it's going to take you to get out of your head for that minute. And that's the long-winded answer about how do you, you know, like how do you manage this business we're in? How do you manage people? How do you manage projects? It's all going to come from you. It's all going to come with how you, you know, who you are, what are you bringing into the room? What are you bringing into the, the mix? What are you bringing into the project? And how well are you assessing the situation with each individual and in some ways you have to be a bit of an alchemist Mm -hmm. you know um up here in the bay area a lot of things are done one-on-one musician or band to engineer producer as far as interactions regarding business does everybody in los angeles just leave it up to the managers to figure out the money no definitely not okay more often than not it goes the other way around more often than not because these relationships are personal the money sort of gets figured out. <laughs> I mean, I'd love if a lot of the business was taken away from me and I didn't have to deal with it. But for the most part, it actually seems to go the other way. It seems like because a lot of the work these days is very personal, people like go, oh, I want Matt. So they call Matt. I want Ross or I want whoever. They don't call your manager first. Mm-hmm. And you know that person. And so it's an awkward thing to go, oh, no, man, call my manager. It's awkward because they just want to talk to you. They just want to interact with you. They don't want to talk to your manager. They don't want their manager to talk to your manager. And whether that would make it easier or not, you have to deal with that on point. Like at that point of impact of that conversation, you have to sort of figure out what their budget is. And very oftentimes these days, it's not even going to be negotiable, really, because they're going to come and they're going to say, I only have this amount of money. And you know, maybe they're not being truthful and they have like that much more money, but that much more money is the money that they absolutely do not want to touch because it's like the only money that they're going to be making off the project. So it's not for me to say, oh, I know you got more money, you know, and they don't want to have the manager do that either. They just want you to go, can you do this or not? You know, and so sometimes I'll have to like go, well, I know how much time this is going to take me and the amount of money you're offering me, you know, manager or not, I wouldn't be able to take you know, because you're offering me so little money that even if you call my manager, he's going to tell you the same thing. Or we'll just talk about the the project to see if I want to even do it. Because if I want to do something in general, I'll figure out a way to do it. And that's when I'll say, let me hear the material first. And you get onto a creative page first and don't let the money and don't let the business, you know, intercede or supersede what is something you want to do because if it is something you want to do and it's something they want you to do then the uh, the possibility that could be successful and again lead to something else is more important than whether you're going to make 500 more bucks or whatever on it you know Mm -hmm. and so i am the only one that can talk creative about me 
with someone who's creative. So when the person who's in, like the pr producer is the artist and the artist is in charge of his own money, even though he has someone funding it, I don't want the guy who's funding it to be talking creative in, that, in essence to my manager who's not as creative as I am. But if you can get the two of them to talk at some point and have an understanding of the actual business where you know you're going to get paid and you know whatever the, the parameters are, that's their job. But the creative thing, you got to maintain control of the creative with the creative people. And, and you can, if you can stay on the same page and there aren't really going to be that many, you know, the problems are less the mm -hmm. ones I was talking about. So you want to get on the same page creatively. And then if you can figure out the money and it can work, then you're going to have a successful project. If you don't get on the same page creatively, it doesn't matter how much money they have, it's probably going to fail because somewhere along the way, you, you never really understood whatever the project was. You know, somebody will say, okay, I've got X amount of dollars to do this project. And maybe the project is logistically out of whack with the money and time. Do you ever get to a point where you say, well, let's talk about the project in terms of the logistics. Can we kind of reduce yeah. the expectations and say, well, you know, you want to do 15 songs, maybe we should concentrate on eight songs. Absolutely. See, that's, that's where when you're on the same page creatively, really not, and not even, you know, like if you can get into those logistics, if they trust you, if you've gained their trust, then you can start to talk about those things. If, if you don't have trust, it is really like you could say anything and they don't trust you. So Absolutely, Matt. I think, you know, that's a lot of what happens once you gain someone's trust and you're working, you want to work on something because you really like, I mean, I, I like to like what I'm working on. I, I've had a couple of things in the last couple of years and I don't really want to name names, but there, you know, there are a couple of websites that do solicitation of like work around the world. And then they have like clients, like they have people like me or whoever it is that's I was asked to be like on their website and I thought it was going to be good for the two of us, like for me and for the, this website where like, I thought, well, if they get me some work that I couldn't otherwise get, that's cool. You know, I thought, well, that's fine. You know? And I thought, well, and they want me on the website cause they want to raise their, you know, cred to have legitimate, you know, people that are known. But what happened was, the way they run their website, they don't vet any of the clients. Like they just look at it like if someone's willing to pay, then you should just be willing to do the work. Mm -hmm. And I realized that working with really, really amateur, amateur people, people that haven't like a clue, and then you have no communication because the communication is going through the website. And the only thing you're doing is like seeing a PayPal money transfer and then files show up before you even heard like the song or anything. I was like, no, this doesn't work for me at all. Like not only would I, not only do I not want to work on this music because this is like really not my thing. And I'm not even talking about even quality. It's just like, it's not, I'm, I'm not the right person for this music, but because they want me doesn't mean I want that. And I don't, you know, I'm not going to be able to, to communicate to them because even musically, we're just not on, on you know, this is for someone else. Mm -hmm. Or the communication because of the language is that hard. And I realized how, how crucial the communication is in the setup of a project before you actually get into like getting paid or figuring out the money or even doing the work. And so it goes all the way back to like the communication being like the most crucial thing because I did a couple of these mixes just out of sort of like, well, what the heck, I'll try it. And they really didn't go well. Like the first one, just the guy was not happy with the mixes. And I was trying to deliver something. He couldn't communicate it. And he was using every single analogy that is completely non-musical because he was so not musical. And he was talking about how he wanted to sound like he was driving down the middle of the Champs-Élysées in a BMW and you know, with the skylight open and all this stuff. And I was trying to figure out what he meant musically. And I kept writing him emails going, can you try to translate your ideas into something musical that I can try to translate into the mix? And I realized that the communication was so off and that like we had gone into this project on such shaky ground communication wise that it was never going to succeed. And then the next mix I did was someone who could not respond timely. Like I, no matter how much I asked, like when I'm in the middle of a mix, you got to hit me back within days because 
kind of like forget even what I was doing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's certain guidelines realize that I have to have. And when those guidelines and those communication things are like squared away before you do any work and deal with any money or anything, it just makes the project go that much smoother. And if you take those out of like my hands and the creative hands and have outside forces just dealing with the business and not, you know, the creative, these projects go weird. What, do you have a, a philosophy about proprietary nature of your mixes and in, in fear of somebody taking that, opening a Pro Tools session, moving a fader up and going, I mixed that. Ross didn't. Um, yeah, I do. I, I don't like giving stems. I just don't. Um, the only times I give stems, and I know they have to have stems, are for movies and TV. Because you're working with composers that have written material that have, a lot of times they'll write a song that has a vocal on it, but they sold the song to Boardwalk Empire or whatever because of the vocal, but they want to use it because of the instrumental. And then when they get into the instrumental, a lot of times what makes it work for picture is getting rid of the drums in that one section and whatever, and they just want to go to like the acoustic guitar riff or whatever. So, you know, these editors have to have stems because of what the director or producers of the movie or, you know, TV show. And so you would be inhibiting the use of the song that you're working on for the person you're working on to have it placed if you didn't give stems. and That'd be insane. And then those things, none of us get credit for that stuff. It's good for me that I'm working with these companies. They like the work, but my name isn't attached to it. You know, right. It doesn't say mixed by me, Kebmo, or whatever. It's just work that I did that gets me paid, and I'm happy to figure out how to navigate that. But yeah, the stem thing, when you give someone stems, they can literally remix your mix. And unless they're using the stems because they're doing placement, I really don't like giving stem. And I tried to basically say in front, look, I just don't want to do that. And if you if you want to remix the song, then you should probably mix it, you know. And I probably shouldn't be mixing this song or like, oh, I'm sorry, or like Van Halen, like, or bands are going to take, like, they need like the stems because the keyboard player has to learn something or whatever. Like, you know, that when you give them stems, they're not taking these stems and they're like remixing your record with it. Like that's, you know, like, you know why you're doing stems. Right. That's when you do stems. Like you just know because we're not like they're not knuckleheads and we're not knuckleheads. It's like, but the ones that are trying to fool you into like, yeah, man, just give me stems, you know, it's like because they're gonna sit there and like play with your mix, it does creep me out. And sometimes I have to get over it and other times I'm not over it. I'm like, I don't want to do it, you know? And it's also really time consuming. Like you spent all this time on the mix and you know, maybe you humor them with some vocal ups, which I don't like printing like a bunch of different versions of like i only like giving versions of the song that i know that i want out in the world i would never print a vocal up way past the point that i would ever print that vocal up mm -hmm. like i don't go like okay vocal up 2 db vocal up half db vocal up a db vocal up a db and a half vocal up 2 db i don't do that because what happens is you end up a lot of times because you've ridden the vocal so meticulously throughout the song that where you want the vocal loud, it's gotten way louder than you want. And where you want the vocal tucked, if you turn the vocal up, it's like, okay, I can understand that's maybe better there. So I'll go through the song, and my vocal ups, I meticulously do. I don't just do them randomly, like a blanket vocal up a DB, because a lot of times, or TDB or whatever, the vocal gets too loud in places, and then that mix sounds cruddy to me. Mm -hmm. And that's what is the worry of the stem, is like, you'll end up out in the world with stuff that is not anything you'd ever want to put your name on because someone just leaked your mix. And the other side of that too is the way that I use compression and most of us that are like, you know, know what we're doing with compression. Like if you do stems and it's just going through that same compression that you're using on your mix bus, that compression is working on the whole mix. Right. Now you just take everything out but the drums the drums are no longer pumping the same way they pump when they got the bass and the other things pushing against the compressor. Right. So you can't just lay all those stems at zero and think you're going to get the same exact mix that you had. Does that make sense to you? Totally. You know yeah. So this mindset of, well, you know, I'll just lay everything at zero. It is your mix anyway. Well, no, it isn't. The mix is the mix you have that's pushing against the compressor that's glued all in together as one thing. You start 
taking and changing what's hitting that compressor. It's the same thing that happens when you have someone come in and say, you know, I really don't like the kick drum. I need like a completely different kick drum. And, you know, in the back of your mind, you go, oh, okay, I'm going to have to literally take apart my mix and put it back together because I can't just change the kick drum because everything is relating to everything. Have you ever That's thought about just saying to avoid it, just say, well, I charge this much for the mix. Oh, you want stems? I'm going to have to charge you another charge for that. I always do that. Okay. Yeah. If it's a client that I know is like border, like that's where you have to read the clients too. Like you don't say to a client, you're a knucklehead, but you know the ones that are, you know, and you still want to work on their music and you like them and they're, you know, this is their first record and all that stuff. But they got so attached to like having their Pro Tools rig in their bedroom or whatever that, you know, they want to play around with your mixes with the stems. And it's like, I don't really think so. You know, it's like, and so you have to sort of be like a very touchy, delicate thing because, you know, no one wants to be called like a neophyte and, you know, be told they really don't know what they're doing. Maybe musically, the neophyte thing comes in amazing because that naive, amazing naivete creates great creative music. Yeah. But it also can like damage the finished product. It's like putting your, you know, mixes you're really happy with with a mastering engineer that doesn't know what they're doing. And then you get back, you know, the Waves L2 smash to the brim. Sausage. You know sausage fest you know limited mastering and you know so that's the other side of the project for me that is like when i go into a project with the somewhat neophyte um not really knowing what they're doing i try to say well you know i'd like to be able to see this all the way through to the finish line you know so we should make sure that we are on the same page as far as mastering and stuff you know can you just tell me a little bit about uh you're a family guy we, we both are dads how have you over the years navigated raising a family or having a family stay intact and strong as, as possible? Because I mean, it's a treacherous business and, and marriage is not always an easy business in itself. And adding kids into the mixture is very uh, challenging. So what has been your strategy to try to keep it all together? Um, really simple things like create a calendar. I mean, thank you, Google, for a shareable Google, like, I mean, not to bag on Mac, but the Apple calendar, I think, you know, as they as they change OSs to OSs, the Apple calendar just is mangled up, you know. But Google Calendar is great because my life is like subject to change without notice, as yours must be and most people's are mm -hmm. in the music business. But the minute something changes, I make sure it hits the Google Calendar, and I have for years now, like as long as that's been around. But, you know, keeping it together before that was really hard before there was such a thing as like a Google Calendar. It's all been a lot easier because of that. Now it's there. I recommend everyone use one and, you know, share their calendar with their significant other and their kids if they're on a computer or a phone or whatever, because you can stay current, like in the moment with things changing. And that goes back to like communicating with the client and with your family. Like I had this epiphany about, th about uh, Halloween early, early on. Like after I'd missed a couple of Halloweens because I was really busy, and you realize, okay, in the life of a child, you're only like if you think back, think back ten days or eleven days, or think about or think about just ten or eleven days out of your life. It's like nothing. Mm -hmm. But think that's all you're gonna get when it comes to like a Halloween in the life of your child. Like you're only gonna get ten, eleven, maybe twelve of them if you're really lucky. Of the magical, magical moment where you're there in you know, they are Peter Pan and you're with them and you're Peter Pan because it's like Halloween is magical. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a magical holiday. So you have to like put value, like where would you rather be on Halloween with your family or your kids or in a studio cutting vocals because you didn't communicate that this was really important to you? And then you resent it. And then resentment is like, you know, you're just drinking poison basically with resentments. So I learned early on, I'm not giving these up. Like unless you're Paul McCartney or Bono, I mean, people that I would say, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm in the studio with a once in a lifetime artist. And that has to happen that day. But even John Fogarty, I told John Fogarty this early, early on when we were working together. And he looked at me and he goes, you know, you're right. We're not working on Halloween. He had kids too. He had a couple of young kids. 
so you have to do those things with young kids when you come home and that is the only time you're making for them you don't know whether or not they have time for you or even any kids at all teenagers too i mean mm-hmm. like when your kid says oh no man i'm too busy if you do that a couple of times they won't say hey check it out again because you'll their experience of you is you're too busy and so when you're now feeling like you're not too busy and you're like hey man you know what were you they're like no 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 or whatever you know so you have to understand the boundaries that you need to set for your work you know place and you have to you know make your family as important even though you know the, there's always that excuse of like well man i got to make a living you know i'm the one making the living i'm the one paying the bills but who feeds your soul you know, money doesn't feed your soul. So that's what I've, you know, I had some early, early epiphanies because man, in my majority of my career, you know, I worked on Thanksgiving. I don't know how many Thanksgivings and New Year's Eves and Christmases. And, you know, I, you know, you just did because it was the people you were working for that were like, no, I need you to work, man, because I got a New Year's Eve thing to go to. Yeah, you got to finish this for me. We got to have this tomorrow. So, you know, we were just always slaves to the grind to, and then you kind of wake up one day and go, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to lay down the law here. Like, this is not okay. And so, so vacations the same way. I've scheduled vacations and we, it's a, it's a cliche, but it's true. If you want work to come in, schedule a vacation. <laughs> but what you're going to have to do is when that work comes in, unless it's, your top five or whatever, you know, create a top five. Stevie Wonder, you know, for me, it would be like Stevie Wonder, Paul McCartney, you know, people I haven't worked with, whatever. Um, unless it's one of those people, I am not changing my vacation for you. So these are things that I learned, you know, like I had to re, like I had to change my being as a family man. I had to go, the family is important. We're going away nothing's changing this vacation. And I remember being on Cape Cod with my family, Shakir's manager had like tracked me down and wanted me to work. And this, and this Shakir record would have ended up being like two years of work or something. It was insane. Like what it would have ended up being. I said no to it. I was out on the water and my mom's hitting the cowbell and I was like, yeah, okay, okay. And I finally come in and I call the manager and and he's like, yeah, we need you to fly to Miami, you know, we need to fly to Miami, like, you know, immediately if you want to do this work. Because my manager at the time had like said, okay, well, you can reach him up here. Like, this is really important. So they tracked me down. And I sort of was like, no, I can't do it. You know, Shakira was notorious and is notorious for like taking a long time to do stuff, you know. And it really wasn't even about her at all. It was just that's who it was, you know, as a fact. But she needed someone to literally go and fly to Miami and be in Miami and and be working like the next day. You know, I had to like go and think and go, you know, okay, there's this work over here, but there's this vacation. And at that point in time, what that ended up being, and I'm not being overly dramatic about it, but that ended up being the last summer vacation that I had with my stepfather, my mom's. Um, second husband after my dad when they, you know, and if I had flown off to Shakira and taken off, I would have given up that last memory of hanging out and having a good memory because then he got brain cancer and the next summer he was dying of brain cancer and he basically passed away in the fall. So we never went back to Cape Cod ever again with him. This is your, your stepfather. Yeah. He's, you know, who, who now has been gone since 2010. Do I feel like I made the right decision? Absolutely. Could I have used those two years solid of work with Shakira? Sure. But did I do a bunch of other great work in those two years? Sure. A bunch of other work came in and whatever. So was it way more important for me in that moment at that point of impact when my, you know, when I was like on the phone, it was like, you know, really, really enticing to know that, you know, well, if I'm starting a Shakira record, these things could take a long time. It could be like really great steady work. But the more important thing was to not devalue my family over that. That's because I already, you know, and I'd made a commitment way back years, even prior that I would not devalue my family, you know, unless literally, and like, it sounds like a joke, but literally, if it was like Stevie Wonder, or like a beetle, or, you know, pick your like, top, top of the food chain person that you've dreamed working with your whole life, you know, there aren't that many of them, because I've worked with a lot of them. And they're just human beings anyway. And the really good human beings listen to you like a human being. And they're like, unless they really have to do it that week or that day or that month, 
when they really want you, they usually wait for you. Well, you know, I mean, like Nam is held every year around the time of my oldest son's birthday. And people are always like, oh, you're going to Nam, right? I'm like, nope. Yeah, that's it. Same same here with South by so, so What. Not that I really am dying to go down to Austin, but I love Austin. Yeah. But I haven't been to a South by Southwest in 18 years because Brady's birthday is 311. So South by Southwest is always that week or somewhere right there. And I'm not going to go down to South by Southwest and miss his birthday. I'm just not going to do it. Nope. Like you. So it's the same concept. It's like, where, where are your priorities at? You know, now, do I put that in his face? Does he know that? He doesn't even know that probably. I probably mentioned it, but he doesn't even know it. And I don't think about it because it's like, the more I think about it, it's like, I don't want to be there anyway. Where would I rather be? You know? So if you love your family, if you don't, then that's where you're not, you know? And then you'll be talking to someone who's like, well, this is my third divorce. And I just don't want that. Yeah. I don't want to be that guy. So, you know, I I really like what you had to say there about, about family. I think that's, that's, that's good information because there are a lot of engineers out there, I think, struggling to maintain that balance of, well, should I take the work or should I stay with my family and do this and do that? It's very easy to put, get blinders on, I think, and realize, oh, my kids are really resenting me right now because I'm missing this or I'm missing that. You know, life moves really quickly and it seems to accelerate as your kids get older. And, you know, I say it to any of my younger friends or people that have little children, it's like, don't miss it. Because when it's gone, you'll miss it. You'll And even if you didn't miss it, you'll miss it. Like, I cherish carrying the little sack of potatoes out of Disneyland or wherever. Like, those are magic. You know, you need those experience. You need that in your life. It can't just be about work. I mean, it's like, you know, the workaholics, which we all tend to, I think, have a tendency in our nature to we like to serve. We like to make people happy. We love our work, which is one of the main things about, you know, choose a job you love and you never work a day in your life. Well, that's what most of us have done in the music business. You know, we do this because we love it, passionate about it. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, some jobs are like, do I dig the ditch or do I take my family on vacation? You know, it's like, well, fuck, I'm, on, I'm going on vacation. <laughs> I'm going on vacation, yeah. You know, so we're not ditch diggers. You know, maybe sometimes it feels like that. But we're doing stuff we love to do. But at the same time, you know, what's really important? Figure it out. If your family's not important, you certainly aren't going to be important to them when you want to be. Like, when you want their attention, you're not going to get it, you know? Hey, and uh, parting parting thoughts on, because uh, I'm, I'm sure, like, if I don't ask you about this, people are going to be like, oh, my God, how come you didn't ask him about Van Halen? Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe some highlights of, of the experience. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the experience was fantastic and and in many ways, but I'm just kind of curious, like, can you sum up like the, the method that the record was done? And as anyone would probably expect anything with Van Halen comes with like massive challenges. So going back to like the part of the conversation, we're talking about communication and people. And also the fact that I, you know, said that, you know, Alex particularly says that this business is about people. He says that specifically because, you know, he and Ed as brothers, are, you know, that's a wolf pack. And then you add the sun in and that's a real wolf pack. So here's a record that hasn't, they hadn't even worked with David on a record in 28 years. They hadn't made a record in 16 years. So the challenge is like at that point, you know, actually pulling off, navigating all that. So yeah, it took like every ounce of all my people skills to just navigate through that. That's where you, your people skills overcome your technical in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I have to say, you know, when it comes to playing music, the three Van Halens are so amazingly connected. And it's a really beautiful thing to be part of. And and I'm, I'm just so honored to be, you know, friends with them all. And Ed is a beautiful, wonderful human being, you know, and he's gotten a bad reputation over his career for, you know, his abuse. And now he's been clean for a long time. And he's just he's a wonderful human being. He's got such a big heart. And Alex is funny as hell. And Wolfie is amazing. You know, and then you have David Lee Roth, and he's, you know, on 10, 20, 100 all the time. He's just on all the time. So, yeah, I'm really proud to have to be a part and to have been a part and proud to make that record and, you know, cross the finish line with something that people thought could never be done. 
and be able to be in the same room as someone who I believe is like the Mozart or whatever of our, our day and age when it comes to guitar. There's few people in the history of guitar that will change the face of guitar like Ed has, you know, Les Paul, maybe Charlie Christian, maybe Django. But Ed definitely has changed the whole face of electric guitar for it, history. And to be in the same room with someone like that who's also a really wonderful human being is just an honor and it's a privilege and you know to have and have that and share that is like I can't tell you you know enough about just how that makes me feel but one of my favorite sayings is that you know really great opportunities are usually disguised as really hard work and nothing comes easy when it comes to you know situations like that you know where you have a lot of you know interpersonal drama over all the years with Dave and the band and stuff and all of it's well documented it's not I'm not saying anything that isn't so you know, for people, one of the really proud things that I was able to bring to Ed's world was technical. Like, it was the first time he'd ever used two heads and two cabinets and had a 57, which he always used. But I added Royers to his blend. And so he had a 57 and a Royer on each um, cabinet. It's not a stereo rig per se because it's a mono source, but there's no electronic doubling in that respect. You know what I mean? The the stereo width is coming out of the two cabinets and the two heads and air moving separately like that. So that was awesome. And really, I'm really proud of turning him onto that. And because like his live rig then becomes stereo with a mono dry, sort of the opposite. That's like something that a lot of these guys, Lukather and a lot of the cats, you know, have been doing for years, but they never really took it in the studio. And then adding the Royers for the girth of the guitar is something that now I know he's a big fan of, you know, and again, you don't come in the room and start telling Ed how you're supposed to record. He's an amazing engineer, great ears. And I mean, one of the most, like he hears shit that, cause he feels it through his fingers, you know, there's a lot to be said about the process, but um, I'm just really proud to have navigated through the whole process and pull it across the finish line and have it be a result. You know, I enjoyed the record immensely. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and okay. I bought it. Yeah. I cool. paid money for it. <laughs> well, this has been great, Ross. And I, I it's good to see you. And I appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to be on this podcast. And All right. Look, man, much love. I'll, I'll see you later. And thank you again. All right, brother. Stay in touch. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Matt. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Ross. See hey, you. Bye. All right. There it is. Another great interview. Another bunch of wisdom to take away from. And it always is for me. I hope it is for you. And I, I guess that's why all of you keep listening and sending me these really nice notes. No negative notes so far. This That's nice, of course. <laughs> Facebook. Hey, we're almost at a thousand likes, everybody. That's awesome. So tell more people. I think we're like, I don't know, 25 likes away from, from being at a thousand. Twitter, that's looking good too. That's in the 600 range. Love to get that to 700. So uh, yeah. And also, I think, I think I've mentioned it before. We're on Tumblr. If you're a tumble, tumble person, Tumblr person. And of course, I've got uh, a whole thing going on on SoundCloud. The YouTube thing, I've kind of dragged my feet on that. That's very time intensive to upload that. So I'll have to, um, I'll have to put a little more time into that. Of course, we don't seem to have very many listeners on YouTube. I don't know. Lots of stuff to do. All right. Well, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And thanks again to Ross Hogarth. And uh, hey, make it out to Potluck Audio Con. See you next week. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.